we've lost the sense of of the sacred and sanctity and are playing with life in in really some kind of Frankensteinian ways. It, it's strange that we should see ourselves in such a manipulable way that 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 none of that seems to give us pause or it gives some of us still give some of us pause but there are people out there who it's like well if if we can open the door and walk through it we're gonna walk through it you must be some kind of therapist i am some kind of therapist and i'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Samantha Stevenson. She is the host of the podcast, Brave New Us, Bioethics in the Light of Faith. She recently interviewed me on that show. You can look out for that episode coming out in December or January. She is also the author of Reclaiming Motherhood from a Culture Gone Mad, which came out last November, and she's currently working on her next book. She's also a homeschooling mother of four with master's degrees in theology and bioethics. Samantha is in a really unique position, given her background and interest, to talk about the intersection of faith and bioethics. In a way, this episode sort of follows up on previous conversations I've had with other people in the field of bioethics, like Callie Fell and Jennifer Lal. Today, we might talk about the sort of Pandora's box that has been opened by the, the technologies that this incredible human brain has come up with and the ethical dilemmas that, that those technologies now present us. Samantha is a deep thinker and an excellent interviewer, so I'm glad to get to talk with her again today. Samantha, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for the kind words. Mm-hmm. So you are coming from a position of having a strong Catholic faith, and your podcast addresses bioethics from a Catholic perspective. And I thought I might start with talking about what that has meant to me and what it does mean, because my mother was an ex-Catholic. My grandmother was very strictly religious and had five children, and my mother grew up very religious, even thinking at one point that she might be a nun. And then she had a crisis of faith in her 20s. And so by the time I was born, she was an ex-Catholic sort of atheist who met my father in the Unitarian Universalist Church. She was drawn to things that reminded her of some of the comfort of religious traditions and rituals, like the church experience and some of the music associated with it. But I also know that for her, the Catholic faith was associated with emotional abuse that hurt her deeply, and it was very tied up in her fraught relationship with with her mother. And so growing up, my impression of Catholicism was that it was extremely strict in a way that was fundamentally op- oppressive to people. And I think that this is the, the perspective that a lot of people have who might have been raised by ex-Catholics or might have had the sort of West Coast liberal background that I did. So it's been really interesting for me the last few years as I've been talking to people from around the country, getting out of my West Coast bubble, 
And as I've had my finger on the pulse of what's going on with detransitioners, because I've noticed that a lot of detransitioners are on their own journey of looking for faith, looking for meaning, looking for a new belief system. And many of them seem drawn actually to Catholicism in particular, or otherwise to faiths or cultures or sort of ethoses that are a lot more, let's say, sexually conservative. So it seems like there's, at least from from where I stand in the culture, there's kind of like a resurgence of interest in Catholicism. And you yourself didn't start off Catholic. You started off growing up Lutheran. And so I'm curious if, if you wouldn't mind beginning with your journey of finding the Catholic faith and how that resonated for you. Yeah, thank you. So I wouldn't say that I ever had a, a negative experience of Catholicism, but I definitely can understand people who have had that either be their upbringing or have had even other religious traditions where things can be a little bit maybe warped from the biblical ideal and and do have that oppressive flair. And so I think and I I hope that all Christians and people of faith would join me in, in being able to say those things are, you know, we're sorry that that was your mom's experience. And we would hope that that would be condemned as as sinful in the way that she was hurt by that. And and so I want to say that first. But for my experience, I was raised in a family that was really faith-filled and active in going to church. We went to church every Sunday and it was a beautiful experience. I came to faith there. So I, I didn't have the experience that some people today have. We call them the religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, that that they'll voice an experience of like, well, I had to kind of learn the language of faith because that's something I never grew up with. I grew up always having faith. So my experience of coming to Catholicism was a little bit different from somebody like that who had to meet Jesus and understand that there's a real person animating the faith that we have and an invitation to relationship there. I feel like I had that growing up and that's the gift that my parents gave me. But what I was searching for and wrestling with, and I, I did have kind of a antagonistic relationship towards, is I went to a Catholic high school and I thought, like most high schoolers, thought that I knew everything. And so I wanted to engage with people about these religious questions of our faith and these differences. And in high school, I I didn't really find anybody who shared that. I was, it was a really small high school, so it's not surprising there weren't that many high schoolers who wanted to engage in that level of religious debate. But I had pressing questions about you know, the truth of what it means to to walk in this path of Christianity, and I thought I had all the answers to. And so I didn't really find anybody who was willing to talk to me about those things until I got to college. And I actually did go to a college, a Catholic university, and I started dating a young gentleman who is Catholic, and that wasn't really a problem for me because at the time, I would have said, "Well, we're you know we're all Christians. We believe a little bit differently." But from his perspective, there were certain differences in opinion that were not just differences in opinion. They were differences about the truth and and the truth matters and has implications in, in a relationship, especially if you're thinking about marriage and you're thinking, well, how are we going to raise our children? It's really good to be aligned on those matters of what is true and what isn't and how are we going to raise our kids with certain values. 
and which church we're going to go to and things like that. So he said, no, it's really important that that you think about this and that you discern that. So I went to our university's, it's called RCIA, basically get your questions answered. And, and if you continue with it, they lead you through sort of the rites of Christian initiation and, and you can become Catholic through that. So I went to those classes and they had a lot of discussions in that, those particular classes about like how sunsets made us feel and I don't know, the, the like sound of the wind through the trees. And, and so from my perspective of wanting to engage in more of a philosophical debate about what is true, the sunset conversations were not feeling the need that I had. So I concluded that there was nothing compelling about the Catholic faith because Again, I know everything and still 18, 17, 18 at this point. So I broke up with that young man. And I also doubted through that time, am I just doing this because I'm dating this guy? That's not really a good reason to change your mind. But I did notice that I still had questions about the Catholic faith even after we were broken up. And so at that time, I started to pay a little bit more attention to that. And I was also attending mass because mostly I was just too lazy to go off campus and find a Lutheran service. And to me, God is God and you're worshiping him. You're worshiping him in, worshiping him in mass. You're worshiping him in your Lutheran community. It's pretty much the same thing. So I was going to mass and I was singing in the choir and having these questions. And I thought, well, I'm just going to keep looking. And I was also going to an event called XLT, which is Eucharist, Eucharistic Adoration and Praise and Worship Music, because I had been raised in a church where praise and worship music was a very big part of our faith. You know, my dad was in the band. my I was in the youth band growing up. So that was really important to me. And that was the only place on campus where I could go participate in that kind of worship. So I was going, but at the same time, I felt conflicted because the Eucharist, so that for anybody who's not familiar with Catholic practices, is what we understand to be the body of Christ displayed in a monstrance. So this beautiful golden display case. And the people who are who I was going and singing praise and worship and worshiping God with were kneeling down in adoration of what was, in my mind, it was either a piece of bread or it was God. So what I was doing when I was going there was either worshiping the God who made us or committing complete idolatry. And I had to reconcile that. So I wrestled with that and sought some of some of those people who were there with me. We went and we had really long conversations and they gave me these, they cited scripture, like walked me through these different teachings that I had issues with or needed to understand. And I found what I eventually realized were better answers than I had had growing up to certain questions about what was true. And so that was kind of the beginning of my intellectual conversion. And then it took a little while for me to actually convert in faith and believe and to say yes to God calling me to to make that change. Wow, that's that's a compelling story. You describe the image of the bread and the symbolism and, and this moment of, of grappling with sort of being at this crossroads. Am I interpreting this as an act of faith or as an act of sin. So how did you eventually come to understand the symbolism of that particular ritual? Well, I I was pretty, I was halfway there, I would say, because the Lutheran understanding of what happens during the consecration at a church service is 
not pure symbolism as it is with many evangelical churches. It is con substantiation. So the belief that during those words of consecration that your pastor says or that the priest says in Catholicism, that what happens is there is a, a change in the substance, in the whatness of what you're seeing. The belief of consubstantiation is that it maintains the substance of bread, even though it has the philosophical term as the accidental characteristic. So it looks like, smells like bread, but also then the body of Christ comes to be present. So I already believed that. What was different or was the belief in in Catholicism is transubstantiation so that this bread, though it maintains the appearance of bread, actually the substance or what's underneath the the itness, the whatness of it becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. So it was it was really through prayer. I mean, it was understanding, it was reading scripture. It was going to John chapter six and understanding, well, when Jesus says, this is my flesh, you know, what is it that he means that you must eat my flesh in order to be saved? Is he actually speaking symbolically, which is the way many evangelical churches interpret those words? Or does he mean what he's, what he's saying? Does he mean these words in a, in a more literal way? And, and so going back and kind of understanding how did the early church understand those words, you know, at the time? Why did all these people in scripture, it says all these people left. Why why did they do that? It's because they, they thought he was literally saying, this is my flesh and you do need to eat my flesh in order to be saved. So diff- understanding different things like that and going back to the history and Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages and just reading more and more and about searching for truth. And the more I was convinced that it was the truth, then it just became about a leap of faith because even if you understand that something is true, it doesn't necessarily mean that you fully assent to like the call to relationship with this person that is Jesus Christ. Or it doesn't mean that you say, oh, yeah, I know that this is true, but the implications of that truth are that I have to change everything about my life. I have to accept that my parents might reject me, my church of origin, that was my family growing up and because we lived in Hawaii. And so I was with my nuclear family and then my extended family was my church. That's who I grew up with as my family. And am I really ready to abandon all of that um, for this person that I, that intellectually, yes, I believe in. Okay, now through prayer, yes, I believe I'm being called to this, but there's still that leap of faith where you have to actually choose it. So it was through, through prayer that that process happened. I think one of the negative conceptions that non-religious people have about religious people is that accepting that leap of faith means that you are no longer thinking for yourself. And so it's interesting because you come across as such a thoughtful person and you describe this process of really needing to intellectually grapple with these deep questions and existential matters on your own, in your own way to come to that place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think I can understand where people are coming from and, and that is a I think a perception that people with a certain secular worldview can have and it can be it can come across if you're reading certain history books in a certain way if that's just what you've what you've heard and certainly people who have been raised in a particular tradition might have been raised and just really uncritically accepted whatever it was that they were told i think that that happens a lot 
what I don't know if people will do this in other traditions, but in Catholicism, if you're a if you are a convert, sort of that carries a certain connotation with it. But you have thought about these things and make made that choice. And then people who have been more cradle Catholics, if they've they've done that, and they've also done sort of the intellectual work of figuring out if they believe what the church says for themselves, then they call themselves a revert. So that might be a good way to distinguish between, yeah, there actually are people who are really uncritically sort of receiving things and maybe not always the the way that it really should be interpreted. You know, they just kind of get it from the culture or whatever it is. And then people who have really sought out the truth and tried to find out, well, what is it about us that makes us human and what were we made for? What's a family for? What is a man? What is a woman? And and look to scripture to answer those questions and to look to the tradition of the church because religion in general has been asking these questions for thousands of years. Whatever religion you want to look at, those are the kinds of those are religious questions. And so, especially in this day and age when even people are even denying science or looking at the limitations of science, you know, we can say homo sapiens and we can look at what human dna is but that doesn't really tell us well what what are we here for that's a philosophical question and and religion has been dealing with that philosophical question for since there have been people seems like being rooted in a particular faith then gives you the strength to branch out and grapple with the difficult questions that modern life throws at us and i'm thinking of what might initially seem like a strange analogy but a secure attachment. So you know very well as, as a homeschooling mother, you prioritize that bond with your children. And if you've studied attachment, then you understand that one of the values of having a strong bond with your babies when they're young is that the more secure they feel in their connection to you as their mother, the more they then, as they get older, have the strength to go out and explore the world knowing that they have that secure base to come back to. So secure attachment gives us the freedom to be more adventurous with a sense of trust and safety to hold us along the way. And I see something similar with faith, considering what it is that you do, that as someone who's rooted in this very particular faith with with its own set of precepts and understandings and, and rules and guidance for life, that then you branch out into the fraught field of bioethics. Yeah, well, and I think that that metaphor is actually a really good one, even or maybe especially for people who come from a, a religious tradition and are afraid to do just that. They're afraid to explore and ask those questions because they're afraid that doubt means that they don't have a strong faith or that they don't, they're not believing properly. I think that that is a, a real problem that plagues a lot of believers is that they're afraid to question things. But it is really by questioning things and, and allowing yourself to explore that you get to know yeah. the real truth, the real person of Jesus, if that's what it is that you're doubting. You, you kind of can't unless you're willing to say, well, what about a world where that's not true? You know, What do I think about that? And then you can come back to that. I think Francis Bacon was, said that a little science leads me in away from God, but a lot will bring him back again. So I think that's a good quotation for kind of understanding that exploration that even or especially religious people are afraid to allow themselves to do. But another metaphor that I really like to use when talking, especially about 
these questions of bioethics is a metaphor of GPS. And if you want to dive into kind of the the moral and even the controversial moral issues that the church is known for, the Catholic Church is known for, the church provides what in fancy language is called a theological anthropology, which just means a way of understanding who we are as human persons. And if we understand that we're made by a God, a creator, for a particular end, a particular purpose, we understand where we're going, and he's given us the directions of how to get there. And so looking at that metaphor kind of helps us to navigate exactly which roads we ought to be taking in these new and emerging technologies, these ways of understanding, well, if I'm if I'm created for ultimate love and happiness and, and my end is in heaven, how do I get there? And how do I, which roads do I take? Which roads do I avoid? You know, it helps to kind of think about the, the moral guidelines as a GPS that are meant to help get you to this ultimate end. I think that that helps sort of make it less, less of an antagonistic relationship, like less about judgment, but more about, because if somebody tells you, well, if you take that right turn, you're going to end up going into the lake. Maybe we don't do that. It, it makes it a little bit more clear, I think. How did you end up getting interested in the field of bioethics? I became interested in bioethics through my undergraduate studies. One of my favorite professors of all time, and he's a good friend now, is Dr. Chris Kayser. And he was off. He, I took every class every semester that I could. So I my undergraduate major, I switched to theology when I was deciding if I wanted to become Catholic and I had minors in psychology and philosophy. And he was a philosophy, he is a philosophy professor. So I took every single class that I could every semester with him. And the last semester of my senior year, he offered a class called, it was questions in bioethics. And we just read essays and, and talked about them and formed different opinions about these big questions in bioethics about abortion, organ donation, all these various topics. You know, when do you determine death? Because if you're going to talk about organ donation, you better know if that's a dead person or a live person you're taking those organs from, things like that. So I, I was very interested in that. And after when I graduated, I went back from my master's in theology while I was teaching at a Catholic high school. And I, I just love school. That's how God made me. I'm a nerd. So I wanted to go back again and, and wanted to really dive more deeply into, into bioethics. A lot of the classes I took, even in my master's program, were cross-listed with bioethics. And so I just found that that was a, a huge area of passion for me. And your current book that you're working on right now is on this subject. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I'm working on a book that looks at these different emerging technologies, things like the the gender issues, reproductive technologies, cryogenics is a way of defying death, looking at each of these things in the ways that it is a revolt against our subsistence in God, or another way of putting that is we don't want to be obedient to the ways that we've been created and made. We don't want, we want to reject those things. And so all of these technologies allow us to basically grasp back control in a way that ultimately, I would argue, is not is not life-giving and doesn't lead us towards who we are actually meant to be. They violate a, a sense of sanctity. I, I find Jonathan Haidt's moral foundations theory really helpful, his concept of the moral palette. 
and sanctity being one of the flavors of the moral palette. And when in his research on liberals and conservatives, it's it's a flavor that's more heavily weighted by conservatives than liberals. And I think it's one that I would dare to say, as someone who's you know been a liberal most of my life and lived in very liberal places, it's one that I think liberals have a really hard time reckoning with because there, there's almost like a rejection of sanctity. I think a lot of liberals are maybe people who are rebelling against some religious trauma or, or oppression that they faced from a hostile environment, you know, sort of like my own mother. Like there's a lot of stories like that. People who, you know, the, the sort of the idea of being whipped with the Bible belt, right? That there are people who have been really abusive in the name of religion. And this has scarred people deeply who felt a need to revolt against, they're not thinking of it as revolting against God the way you would put it. They're thinking of it revolting against abuse and, and oppression. And so in that, there's this kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, this rejection of sanctity altogether. But sanctity is such a core human value that, that goes beyond any one religion, although some religions place more emphasis on it than others. It seems to me as, as a layperson in this regard, that Catholicism places a high value on sanctity, the sacredness of the human body and of life and an understanding that there are some things you don't touch because that, that would be playing God or going against God's wishes. And so, you know, here I am living in Portland, Oregon, working in the counseling field, looking around me at, at what happens when we reject the value of sanctity altogether, when there's this kind of anything goes ethos, and when we even um, disregard our own gut feelings of disgust that tell us that something is is insane, right? Because the, the words sanity and sanctity, I, if I understand correctly, they come from the same Latin roots. And maybe there's some some light you could shine on that from from the Catholic uh, perspective, if you know anything about the origins of those words. But when, you know, just in, in the broad strokes, at least I'll say, when you talk about gender technology, reproductive technology, I know like I've talked with Callie Fell about, Callie Fell and Jennifer Lal about things like surrogacy and IVF. And I know you cover those issues on your podcast as well. You know, even for me as someone who is spiritual but not religious, there is there is a gut feeling there of, oh, something's being touched that that it's not our business to touch. But in a world where this Pandora's box has been opened, once these things exist, they you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube to mix metaphors. Mm -hmm. So how, as, as you navigate these issues in your podcast, your book, and, and turning to your faith the whole time, your faith is is so much older than these technologies. Your your faith goes back to a time when humans couldn't have dreamed that we would end up here in the 21st century. So how do you use this deeply rooted faith with this this long-standing tradition in history to to navigate these 21st century problems? If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. 
So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, that's a great question. And so I think it, it goes back to that GPS metaphor of, is this a route that will get us to what it is that as human beings, we are ultimately created and, and meant to be? Or is this is this a myth? Another way to think about it is the root word of the, if sin, it comes from an archery term, which means to miss the mark. And I think part of the reason that people feel so, I guess, oppressed or implicated is because we have, we associate sin, the word, immediately with feelings of shame. And so if, if the church, for example, is saying like, this practice is off limits, immediately that feeling of shame, you know, comes up or that defensiveness of, well, I'm not bad. That's right. That's not, you're not, that's not what that, that's not what that means. What it, what it means to miss the mark is it, is that that's a wrong turn. And if you want to ultimately you become more virtuous, more loving, more generous, that's the wrong direction. And you, it's fine to have, have made that mistake. Let's turn back. And that's what that means. And, and that, you know, because of so much sin and brokenness in the world that gets warped all the time. So when we're looking at all of these different practices, they just came up with what they want to call they they want to call synthetic embryos where they basically take stem cells and kind of coax them together in a petri dish to to make them into an a synthetic embryo or an embryo model and so there's a big dispute out and there there's an article that just came out in nature and i haven't read it yet i just put it aside to read it but it's well, actually, some researchers are saying that we should not call them synthetic embryos or we should not call them embryo models because if it looks like a duck and acts like a duck and quacks like a duck and then we put it in a woman, it becomes a baby. Like that's more than just a model or something synthetic. Like That actually is an embryo. And what does it mean that we're toying with this? And and so I think you're right. We've lost the sense of of the sacred and sanctity and are playing with life in in really some kind of Frankensteinian ways, um, we're going to take wombs out of women, dead ones, live ones, as long as the womb works, who cares, and put them into the bodies of men, and then put one of those embryos in there, two of those embryos in there, see if it takes, pump them full of all kinds of hormones to try to get the process of birth to come out of this body except it won't be birth it'll be c-section because there's not a place to birth 
out of that particular human body. I mean, it's it's strange that we should see ourselves in such a manipulable way that 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 none of that seems to give us pause or it gives some of us still give some of us pause but that there are people out there who it's like well if if we can open the door and walk through it we're going to walk through it just just to see if we can or um yeah oh lost there first of all thank you for that definition of sin i i learned that at some point in the last few years what you just said about sin meaning missing the mark and hearing it reframed like that has really helped me with redressing some of the things, some of my own conditioning from, like I said, the messages that my mother sent me because the way that she would talk about sin was very much the way you described a lot of people, that it's so deeply associated with like toxic levels of shame and something that if if they want to heal, if they want to have any love or compassion for themselves, they feel like they have to get away from that concept entirely. But it's so much easier for me to relate to the concept of sin in this new, uh, this way that's rel- relatively new to me, as you recently described it. And and it's more in the sense that sort of like the way a loving parent sees their child, right? That that you you don't love your child any less just because you see them reaching for the candy or the TV when it's time for sleeping. You just want to redirect them because you know what's in their best interest, and and so. I could see that as a metaphor for the relationship between humans and God, that God doesn't love us any less when we're doing something that in, you know, to put it in that Catholic framework, that's not in his plan for us, but it's, but it's not going to lead anywhere good. And, and I have that experience in my own way as a therapist, because I'm, I would say one of my strengths is pattern recognition and that I tend to be able to see things a lot further out into the distance than other people see things. Like I'm, farsighted when it comes to my third eye vision, so to speak, right? That that I can kind of predict things where I see if this pattern's happening now, here's what's going to come down the line. And I've honed that skill through psychotherapy because psychotherapy is a process of making a lot of empathic guesses and then getting feedback. And so as someone who's has cultivated that gift, I often feel in a compassionate way toward clients, not entirely unlike how a parent might feel toward a child, or perhaps we might imagine how how a God might feel towards us, that, oh, honey, oh, if if you go that way, that's not, it's not going to get you what you want. It's just going to result in more heartache. You know, how about, how about we do the difficult work of redirecting and trying to go this way instead, right? So, so that feeling, the way you describe it is so much more relatable, so much more humane, and, and understandable for anyone who's having a, had enough life experience to, to gain the ability to recognize patterns in their own lives or in the lives of the people they care about. So with that said, with that context that you laid out so beautifully for what is sin, this idea of missing the mark, then you raise these really tough ethical issues, synthetic embryos, which raises the question of how do we define what is human, just like in the abortion debate that our country seems to be eternally divided over the question of when does life begin is sort of a similar question to what is human. If, if, if someone put things together in a Petri dish, but it's viable, is it human? And, and should we be doing this? And then you bring up artificial wombs and womb transplants. I'm forgetting the name of the, there was that video that went viral on YouTube with the, the womb, the artificial wombs. Oh, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do know what you're talking about. I think they called it the concept. 
it was a concept video. They called it Ecto Life. Is that the one? Yes. You mean? It's like, push the button, and that's the new way of giving birth. Yeah. So, with this technology potentially coming down the pipeline, the idea that it's sort of the, the corollary of the synthetic embryo. So, the synthetic embryo is that humans can create the embryo in the first place rather than just allowing sperm and egg to come together naturally. And then the next stage in the process, where where does that human life gestate to gestate outside of the womb of a human mother is not something that humans have ever done before it's not something any mammal if you take the word human out of that sentence it's not something any mammal has well actually something humans have probably done to i don't know how animal experimentation works in this case but my point is that this i mean talk about brave new world and brave new us the name of your broadcast something that's been on my mind since I saw that ectolife video is if if a life that is that is like in every sense of the word looks and quacks like a duck is a human in that regard but it's not born to a human mother it's not gestated in a womb where there is that incredibly complex interconnectedness with a mother who's whose blood is pumping and whose heart is beating and who's breathing and laughing and crying and listening to music and holding her loved ones. If 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 your experience of gestating is in this synthetic environment that can functionally produce all the right chemicals to bring a human life to that point of artificial birth, I guess it would be, is this human. I mean, it, it just eats away at the foundation of what makes us human because part of what makes us human is that attachment bond that, like I said, it dates back before humans. It's it's mammalian. So that that's where my mind goes with this. Like, is that human? And would it would it be more sinful in a way to regard that as human or to not regard that as human? Either way, feels like a, a major ethical dilemma. Yeah. Why? What's your faith perspective on that? Yeah, so I have to say, okay, there is not because it's such a new idea and technology. The, the idea that that could be a reality and and possibly an imminent one is so new. So there's not necessarily a a Catholic official magisterial papal understanding of that. But I can apply what what I do know and and give you my two cents on that. But they have done it with with sheep. So they've done it with mammals. They have done it also with monkeys. So it's, which is significant because it being possible to artificially gestate a primate is, is one step closer to a, a human being. And I think it, I think it would be naive to think that they won't try it with human beings because there are a lot of people on the earth and, and there are a lot of different governments, a lot of different people with money. So I think that it will happen. When I think it's likely it will happen in the next several years, maybe decades, but it, I think decades is too long. That's just a guess. But looking at the idea of what what is this creature, I think we have to understand if it has human DNA, that's a human creature. If if it were the same kind of creature and it were if it were a duck, like we talked about ducks. If it had duck DNA and it was became a duck, I mean, it's it and it, you carry out that duck 
hatching process, it would be a duck. It's a human. It's a human being in DNA. It's a human being, but quite possibly a very vulnerable human being because the other side of us that ducks don't have in the same way is that relational and rational piece that you're talking about. And so that would be an incredibly disadvantaged human being and an incredibly vulnerable human being. So first of all, that that creature would be very disadvantaged because I think there's an incredible hubris in thinking that we can recreate a human, uh, a woman's womb. There's, we've already seen that that's true of formula. Whatever, whatever way you choose to feed your child, we know scientifically that the best nutrition comes from breast milk. And there are things that we, about the benefits of breast milk that we still don't understand. We still don't understand everything that, every component that goes into that breast milk. And so we know that children fare better, sometimes decades down the line have better outcomes from having that breast milk. And so we would hope that we could give women an environment where it's possible for them to feed their children that best sorts of nutrition. And sometimes that's not always possible. So praise God, we have alternatives as well. But to think that we can recreate a human womb, if you look at some of the effects of just being held at as nascent life babies being held and they don't do these experiments anymore because they're cruel and um, kind of unimaginable but they used to do experiments and we can see the effects in certain like eastern european countries where children were left and not held and children that were not held as infants as babies they die they have severe cognitive developmental delays just from the power i mean they're getting everything they quote-unquote need but they're not getting everything they need because they need to be helped they need that power of touch so to take that developing life outside of a woman's body where it ought to be to come to be and then to say oh in a mechanical uterus well we can control everything the way that we should control it i mean there's just there's a lot of hubris there it's like a titanic level and maybe even worse pride to say that, yeah, we can control everything and we can get everything we need in, in this mechanical creation. I mean, we don't even know everything that it needs. And and there's always, again, that law of unintended consequences. So I think very disadvantaged to think about, well, what are some of the effects that we do know that touch has and, and like bonding and empathy and attachment and those things happen prenatally. Um, so to take that out of the equation into as that that concept video said like you can stream whatever music you want the baby to be listening to you can have record your voice and have it be a recording to think we can we can imitate what ought to be happening perfectly or or better i think it's just uh, a very prideful and control-centered way and, and mechanistic way of of reducing a human being to something that's more like like a car. If we do these things and we change these, the oil, you know, it will behave in this way and it will be predictable. I think not. Computers don't always predict, act the way that you think that they ought to. And they're much, they're more complicated than a car, but they're much less complicated than a human person or even an, an animal life form. And I think also that they would be vulnerable because who takes responsibility for that, for that life? If you want to think about it, if you've seen that show Stranger Things, where there's a 
So there's a little girl and there's a, a bunch of them, but they're sort of taken out of their families and they become the property of this lab to experiment on. And they have, her name is Eleven because they don't have names. And her, her daddy is the scientist that's in control. And that's the only sort of like father that she knows prior to the playing out of the show. But that's, I mean, that's essentially what these creatures become. They're being grown in a laboratory. And if you want to bring to life, you know, 10 of them and see which one or two you like the best and then, you know, dispose of the others. Well, you probably shouldn't do that because there's probably good money to be had on the black market for the eight that you don't want to raise um, or that you didn't like the way they looked or, or functioned or whatever like that. So there's a lot of scary dystopia that could come out of that, aside from just the normal way that we don't un understand. Even even if we look at donor-conceived communities, they're now old enough to be able to articulate the real psychological effects of having been conceived in that way. And that's compared to being created in a lab and, and gestated in a lab and born via ejection of a button like that's pretty straightforward so i think that it's not very respectful of the future person in their their autonomy and their psychology and their development to be able to you know just disregard those things because we have desires for a child i appreciate your pointing out the vulnerability of of a child born that way and it was actually a grounding perspective for me to hear because my mind goes somewhere more selfish. My mind goes toward the fear that I have of what kind of a person that could become because there is this missing human element because my mind goes toward the potential for psychopathy yeah. because of, of what I know about attachment. I mean, we, we know that for instance, there are there are people who were adopted at birth, and I'm not I'm not saying that adoption is not the best option for some families sometimes because sometimes it certainly is, but still there are stories of people adopted at birth or people where the adoption was deliberate, in other words, surrogacy, where there, there was a plan to separate the baby from the mother at birth, where that had such a profound impact psychologically, and they feel that attachment wound forever. And then, but what you layer on top of that, the disconnect from that human element of the bond with the mother and where my mind goes isn't to the vulnerability of the baby that's born, although I think you're right on with that. It's to the, the, the sociopath that develops from not having a secure attachment because we, we know that, that that is a risk factor for sociopathy and psychopathy. And that if you look at the histories of some of the, the scariest criminal minds that we've ever seen, it's oftentimes there was such an instability in the caregivers, especially like I've heard of stories of like people who are really wealthy who just had one caregiver after another and they were basically raised by nannies. And so they never formed a secure attachment to the parents. They never felt wanted by the parents. And they also didn't have, let's say, a, a single nanny that stuck around long enough or grandparent or aunt. And that that can create a lack of empathy. So if that love, if that pure maternal love isn't there right from the beginning of life, from from the moment that the baby is in the womb, then then that is my fear. And and so then I I start seeing these dystopian fantasies play out in my mind that are kind of like, did you ever see that British drama Humans? Mm -mm. 
it's really well done and it's it's a great drama for anyone who's interested in bioethical issues because it depicts a near future dystopia where it's actually very similar to the world we live in today except that their equivalent of what we have with our iPhones and our our smart devices is they have these full-blown humanoid robots that are played by very good actors and these robots some of them gain sentience and so it, it depicts ethical issues that we're not far away from that we're experiencing today in a way like the idea of robots taking jobs I mean that is a real issue especially for Gen Z looking at everything they're hearing about climate change and about how technology can do such a better job than they can at anything they might want to do and and so this this drama highlights the experience of young people growing up in that environment looking like well robots are better than I am at just about everything and then it also brings up sexual issues and what is it to be human what is it to be conscious so I start seeing stuff like that play out except where the the robots are the more like androids, right? These these human but not human products of technology, but that are also sentient and that are also like us. And at what point does it become like an us versus them? And then another place that I go with it is um, once a technology like that is available, I think if we look at the history of technology and you, you know a lot more, this is your field way more than it is mine, but just as a layperson thinking back on times that a technology became available and then suddenly... Not suddenly, but over a fairly rapid period of time, there's an exponential growth curve in the use of that technology to the point where everybody thinks they need it. So we've seen this with cesareans, right? There's a case for cesareans being life-saving for some people, but then now they're so common they're just scheduled because the doctor wants to take a vacation. It's the thing with abortion, right? So a lot of people think abortion is appropriate if it's, you know, safe, rare, and early on in a pregnancy or under these conditions, but then you know, there are people who it just becomes, it's my understanding that there are more abortions than than live births for every pregnancy nowadays. And with gender affirming care, right? What we call gender affirming care is a misnomer. But the idea that, you know, there is this relatively rare population of people with gender dysphoria. And then there's this Dutch protocol based on this hypothesis that, well, transsexuals were miserable because they didn't pass. And so if you cut them off at puberty, maybe they'll be happier. And, you know, and now like one out of 10 kids and Gen Z thinks they're trans. So, or the fact that, you know, 20 years ago, we all managed to function without iPhones. And and now most of us can't imagine our life without that technology. So when I think about the, the early glimpses I've seen of how something like the Ecto Life pod or whatever has been advertised that, you know, it's so much safer because you can control for all these things. Or, or when you think about you know, genetically modified babies. Well, you can make sure that they don't have any of these diseases. And the way these technologies are advertised is so appealing in that that element of control that you described, right? That sort of playing God that you can you can mitigate all these risk factors and therefore it's going to be better for us in the long run because we don't have to deal with all these tragic things that can happen when we're not in control. I can just see that spiraling to the point where I don't know, 20 or 50 years from now, a woman is like the odd one out if she wants to have her own baby and now insurance won't pay for it and she can't find people to help her because they're like, well, you know, this is the this is the safe, easy, effective route. It's much more predictable if we have your baby in the ecto thing. And if you want to have your own 
vaginal birth, that's really high risk. We can't help you here. I can just imagine that playing out. Yeah. I mean, I think it already does with the with the home birth situation. But in terms of like what's behind that, what's driving that, that marketing of, well, this will be easier, more convenient, safer. There's a a fear that we have of of suffering. Like we're all we all we all want to avoid suffering. And and that's a good thing. Suffering is bad. But the problem is that almost anything that's worth doing or having entails a level of suffering. Sometimes it's greater, sometimes it's lesser. But if we are so suffering avoidant, then we can't, we don't have what we need to actually be resilient to get through life, to do anything that's worth doing, like any form of, of meaningful work. And even things that seem not meaningful, like if I want to have clean clothes, I have to do the laundry. You know, if I want to take care of my family, it involves doing some some menial tasks that I don't enjoy. And that's kind of, it's inconvenient. Inconvenience is a form of suffering to larger forms of suffering and risk. And we have to be able to give the next generation and ourselves something better than just, you 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 need to live a comfortable life. You need to be surrounded by pleasure. You Because those things don't actually make us happy. And I forget the the exact details of, of this experiment, but the metaphor still works regardless. There's some sort of form of, I think it was bacterial life or single cell organism. And the scientists, researchers put this organism in the perfect conditions for life. It had everything that it needed to live. And what they found was they actually just all died because they stopped searching and they stopped striving and they stopped trying to get it, whatever it was that they needed. And in some ways, I think that that's a, a metaphor for our culture, for like the large scale anxiety and depression and and lack of desire to keep going and the despair that we see because we do have so much materially. But in some ways, we're really, really poor spiritually. Mother Teresa said that about us. She said that the poverty, the spiritual poverty of the West was so much worse than the physical poverty that she saw and, and was dealing with in Calcutta because the poverty of loneliness is real. That pain is real. You know, She experienced that and tried to help that in Calcutta too because that's a human problem. But I think in a society where we're constantly trying to avoid suffering and avoid pain, we, we maybe miss the point and that we would do better probably if we looked for ways of learning to be more resilient and to kind of overcome and to recognize like, yeah, that's painful and it's hard, but you can do it, which is kind of what parents do with their kids usually. You know, oh, yeah, I know it's hard to learn how to ride a bike. I know you have to fall down a lot, but you can get up and keep going and eventually learn how to do that. But it will involve some scraped knees. And, and those are terrible. They're not good. Wish you could have fewer of them. But you can do this. You can make it through. And if we could figure out a way to help people through that, I mean, I'm sure that as a therapist, that's kind of your job <laughs> to help people discover those things in themselves. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. 
That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar, and it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. And I think you're right with that analogy. And I didn't know that, that even single-celled organisms die without a purpose. But yeah, the, life is is full of suffering and striving. And we do have a real problem with fragility now because our lives have gone so comfortable. Yes, there are existential threats. Sure, there, you know, I know there, there's a, my listeners are divided on the issue of climate change, but there are natural disasters and there's a case to be made for the role that mankind has had in increasing the likelihood of those natural disasters. But in any case, we've always had natural disasters and, and there's always been some idea of apocalypse looming large in the human psyche. I think it's, it's part of our collective consciousness. And you and I were talking about that before we started recording. And, and so I'm not doubting that Gen Z doesn't have those problems and, and like the, the threat of robots taking away your sense of, of meaning and purpose and livelihood too. Sure, there are all, are all these threats. And at the same time, we are materially more comfortable than we've ever been as a species. Even the average middle class person or even somebody living paycheck to paycheck, you know, even if you are quite working class in America today, your quality of life is arguably much better than kings and queens 500 years ago with the technology that we have and the things that you can get at the push of the button, your ability to regulate the climate at all times or to have food from around the world delivered to your doorstep in half an hour. I mean, so I think there is a loss of meaningful struggle and people have to find that or create that somehow and sometimes their efforts to find a meaningful struggle end up maybe creating problems that I might argue are are the wrong problems to be creating for yourself. But I, I wanted to bring up another ethical dilemma that's been on my mind, which is from your pro-life perspective, because we have medical technologies now that can be used to save or preserve life in situations where, so, I mean, let me just put it this way, death in childbirth used to be a lot more common, stillbirth, miscarriage, and babies dying in the first few years of life all used to be a lot more common before we had modern technologies. And so now we have the ability, you know, if, if a baby's born extremely prematurely, we have the ability to keep that baby alive. And there are all sorts of medical issues 
you know, I, I just listened to an episode of your podcast where you were, you were talking about a woman who's, whose mission it is to protect disabled babies, babies with, I can't remember the term, not a foreshortened lifespan, but life-limiting life limiting conditions. And so I'm really curious how you navigate that, where on the one hand, as someone with a pro-life ethos, you would want to do anything in your power to encourage a woman to choose life rather than have an abortion or you would want to do anything in your power to keep a baby alive even if it had some really challenging medical concerns but how how do you handle situations where the only way that that baby can be kept alive is through the use of technologies that raise other bioethical concerns and i'm not even sure what all those ethical concerns are but i know they're there in terms of where we get certain medical resources from and I don't know. You can take it from here. There must be some really tough situations that come up in your field. Sure. And and so this is complex. And one of the gifts that the, the Catholic Church gives to the world is or to the United States anyway. We have the National Catholic Bioethics Center and they do free ethics consults. So if there's somebody who has is in that position where they have a serious life-limiting diagnosis and sometimes doctor, doctors are trained to call them fatal diagnoses, which is not always accurate. So they can actually take the specifics of, of their situation and get real-time help um, to it for free. Just They can call, they can email to get trained ethicists to help talk them through that situation because doctors all don't have necessarily, uh, unless they have an interest in it, they don't have a lot of robust ethical training. So it, it's a very helpful, I think, resource that people can access. And so I'll just speak generally, but especially in a situation like this, those ethics consults are so helpful because the particulars really do matter of you know, your very specific condition. So in terms of abortion, we know that the best thing for the mother in those situations the mother is to carry to term. There's a 98% absence of regret, and there's a much lower instance of those postpartum issues, depression and anxiety and things for, for women who choose to abort in those situations. It's Their numbers are not so favorable. So we know that it's better for women if you want to set the, the question of, of life aside there and, and just look at what's best for the mother she will fare best in those situations. And so sometimes that means that she does eventually go on to have a miscarriage. It's not the same thing as an abortion, no recognizing that when life passes and that life is over. But sometimes these moms get to actually give birth to and hold their babies, baptize their babies, enjoy life, even if they don't provide any kind of, of support afterwards and whether or not they ought to, that's something that they should pray about, talk about with their with, with their family, with their religious leader, with their doctors, because sometimes those kiddos can have really, really good positive options, a high likelihood of leaving the hospital and continuing to survive even sometimes up to five years and, and longer. And sometimes it's not. And sometimes those interventions, if they do employ the, choose to employ, the, employ those interventions, it's not a prolonging of life, but a prolonging of the experience of dying. And and so that can be really painful for the child. I mean, it's painful either way, right, to watch somebody that you love go through a, a serious amount of pain. 
to struggle for life. And so it's very, it's very personal. But I think, I think the assumption maybe from, you know, secular perspective is that, well, religious people, and maybe even from religious perspective, well, we have to fight for every, every second of life because life is good. But from a religious perspective, yeah, life is good, but it's not the only good. It's not the greatest good either. And so when you understand life in terms of eternity, you know, we have our physical life here, but sometimes baptizing and holding those babies until they, for as long as you can, you know, and enjoying that time that you have until they take their last breath, holding them in your arms that's the best gift as a, as a mother, as a parent, as a father that you can give to those kiddos. And, and then to also be able to let them go and to pass into the arms of their heavenly father. And I have a podcast episode coming out with a really heroic young woman, Nicola Blanc, and she, she did just that. She had conjoined twins that, and her story is really powerful and really beautiful. But she was told that she had to abort and that she couldn't carry these babies to term. And she sought other alternatives because that wasn't something that she wanted to accept. And so sure enough, she was able to carry them as far as she could. And then it came time to to give birth. They had to, if they wanted to try to have a chance at life, they had to do a C-section. I forget exactly what point in her pregnancy. I think it was past 30 weeks. I don't recall exactly. But the twins shared a heart. So their likelihood, I mean, their prognosis was not good, but she was able to really joyfully welcome her daughters and hold them and baptize them. And so her story is, is really beautiful. And I think I wish that we could hear more stories like that because it would help us to understand have a little bit more of the nuance, but just the gift of the time that we do have with our loved ones, even if, even if it's short. And we never know how much time that's going to be with any of our loved ones we never know how much time we get so being able to value every moment but then also not overvalue life to the point where we're extending death and maybe it is kind of the perspective that i think clinicians see a little bit more often which they see it from just a perspective of gosh this this child's really almost maybe being tortured and let's steer this treatment in another direction and that's where i think those specific consults can be really helpful Thank you. That's a great resource that you mentioned. The Na- National Catholic Bioethics Center and their free consultations. We'll have to make sure to put that resource in the show notes for people who are navigating difficult issues and would like a faith-based perspective. I want to shift focus now and ask to sort of actually loop back to where I started, that I've noticed this trend of detransitioners being drawn towards Catholicism and other religions and and cultural norms that have a much more conservative sexual ethos. And so I'm curious about how how you see the draw of the conservative conservative sexual ethos. Any specifics you want to offer about the the Catholic value system there and why why it resonates for you and why you think it has this draw towards so many young people these days. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that it it com- it all comes back to that those basic questions of who are we and what are we made for and when people are really honestly searching for answers the the especially the catholic tradition has and that's what appealed to me when i was looking looking at it and thinking cuz i had grown up in a religion tra- religious tradition but i 
was curious about it because it seemed like, gosh, you know, there's just, I can't quite articulate it, but there's just so much more in the Catholic tradition. It seems like this is a, is not just, well, I'm a conservative and I'm a dancer and I'm a Presbyterian. You know, it's not just an aspect, but it's an answer to the whole of who we are as human persons. It This is a, a philosophy that directs and animates the trajectory of our lives and and so i think the saints are a really good and inspiring example of that you can look at there are so many different saints and they all did being human in really different and interesting and holy ways and it's beautiful to see that human goodness lived out in such a diversity of time and the gender diversity that we have and and you know occupations and and to see wow we can be humans in a really good way in a lot of different ways but the virtues that define what it is to be a good human those things stay the same virtues that have really been denigrated in our contemporary area things like prudence so we've turned that into well you're a prude or a chastity, that has a negative connotation. Purity, purity, well, who wants to be pure? Well, those things those things are, are beautiful. Like when we think of something that's pure, like the color that's associated with white, the sense of those virtues being good things, like temperance, temperance got a bad rap. Well, temperance means self-control. Like being able to control yourself is good. You know, having, being able to Prudence, being able to, it's practical wisdom, being able to be in a situation and know what the good thing is to do. And then fortitude is another virtue, being able to have the courage to choose whatever that is. Like those are good things. And so I think maybe, you know, through the different philosophies that we've experienced animating our cultural mores over time, those things have been denigrated. But when people come back to this search for meaning and they think, well, what does it mean to be a good human? Having self-control and having courage and and being able to pursue these things, those are good things. If I want to have a, a successful marriage for people who still think, yeah, it really is a beautiful thing to witness unconditional love and devotion to each other in, and to embody this no matter whatness of marriage, well, it's probably better if you're going to commit to one person for the rest of your life. It probably is better to practice that kind of commitment throughout your life so that you develop the virtue of chastity because you're still chaste when you're married. You just say yes to one more person than when you were saying uh, yes to no persons in terms of uh, sexual activity before you were married. So I think that the the attraction there is... Um, probably something similar to the Jordan Peterson phenomenon of being able to have confidence that, yeah, these moral demands require a lot, but you can you can do that. Like you can rise to that occasion. I think people haven't heard that message as much in more recent years. Um, and so I think it is inspiring and uplifting to think, well, yeah, we we could actually, to be able to believe in something like monogamous marriage again, that that is a possibility for me, especially people who you know, have a lot of wounds from their families of origins and maybe didn't see that modeled for them well. 
to to be able to believe in that ideal and to think, yeah, I can actually do this. And then the gift of having a faith tradition is to know, well, I don't have to do that on my own. I know that I can't measure up to that. I know that I'm sinful. I know that that's a lofty goal. And I can call on God for the grace to to live that in me and through me, I think is a gift of of having that religious faith and that confidence in God. Well, that was really beautiful. I, I love that you brought it back to these central virtues. I wrote them down, prudence, chastity, purity, temperance, and fortitude. And and you centered how uplifting it is to be given a message that that yes, you can aspire to have a virtuous character. You can do difficult things and that a lot of people, similarly to how people are being drawn towards Catholicism, people are being drawn towards Jordan Peterson, they're drawn toward those who have a message that, yes, life is inherently challenging, but you can make it challenging in a meaningful and worthwhile way to achieve great things and and be a better person. And that religion gives you a, a container for that, a guidance system, and a, a community. That was really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Thank you. On, on that subject of virtues, there's a couple ways I want to go. So I think maybe I'll save for my last question for you. I'll save my question about the saints, because when you mentioned the saints, I want to know if you had any favorite saints. So I'm just going to let you think about that in the meanwhile. But But before we get there... I wanted to pick your brain on on the the cardinal sins and, and virtues because I understand that they go together. And this is something that I've been reflecting a lot on lately, specifically pride. So I think that the notion of sins, regardless of whether you ascribe to a particular faith or not, that's a really valuable concept for self-reflection. And I think, you know, there's no denying that the things that are thought of as these cardinal sins are part of our nature as humans and that they they're at odds with our best interest but they they tempt us to to think that they are in our best interest right and so um pride in particular is one that i've had um my own learning curve with and probably will for my whole life and um and it's one that i think gets me the most in other people um you know, earlier you were talking about the hubris of some of the ways in which humans play God. And I think because so much of my work centers around battling the evils associated with some of those ways in which humans have attempted to play God, I feel like I'm constantly staring that 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 particular form of evil in the in the eyes and and in some kind of battle with it. And I've I've literally looked into the eyes of my state representatives and seen it in them when I'm trying to talk to them about this issue. And I think that hubris, which is a form of pride, is a big reason that we're in this mess. It's it's the pride of being overly confident that you are on the right side of history and then therefore thinking that you do not need to listen to your fellow human when they're trying to tell you that there's something wrong. That is the essence of what a lot of this conflict over gender ideology is about. So I am in my own <laughs> long-term battle with pride in myself and in others. doesn't mean that the other sins don't play a role. And so I was recently reflecting on, you know, what, what is the antidote to pride as humility, humility being one of, one of the cardinal, cardinal virtues. 
And as I was thinking about all this, I was thinking, I would love to talk to a religious person for whom these concepts have like a deeply rooted meaning and hear their perspective on it. So that being said, I just kind of wanted to open the floor and ask what what for you is the value of having this conceptual framework of sort of vices and virtues or sins and virtues? And how does that guide your self-reflection and decision-making? Yeah. So, I mean, the way to combat a, a vice is by exercising its opposite virtue. And and I would also say like a virtue is the midpoint between two extremes usually. So, for example, fortitude or courage wouldn't, wouldn't be like the absence of fear, but it'd be like, on the one hand being really... Um, I don't know, fearful on, on one end and then being uh, just like brazen and having no fear on the end. And then there's there's courage in the middle. So with humility, being able to, I think it's interesting the way that the word proud has worked its way into our language because we can use it in the way that it, it should be used, the traditional concept of pride as a vice and as a sin but we also say like, oh, I'm so proud of you. Like, you should be proud of yourself. And that's actually not pride. That's humility. And we think of humility as being, oh, I'm not being, den- being self-denigrating. And that's not what actually humility is. Humility is being able to recognize and stand before yourself and others and to see yourself as you are, but with the eyes of God. Like being able to say, yeah, you know, or, or, or the eyes of a parent a good loving parent yeah honey like good job that was good or you know no not so good in that in that sense and being able to say that's something we can work on this particular thing and so we would say oh like you should be proud of yourself no it's like recognizing that's a particular gifting that i have or that article i wrote was was good and that is actually humble it's not humble to say to look at something you've done or a strength or a gift you have and say that oh i make the best chocolate chip cookies in the world but i'm gonna say oh no they're they're just okay like that's not humble that's why and so i think that that's interesting the way that that has kind of snuck into our language to make being proud of things acceptable in that way i think language can be really telling but when I think about that question, and then as a religious person specifically, the Catholic, we have the gift of confession, and they think it's it never feels good to talk about what's going wrong in your life, and specifically your own behavior and your choices. But it is such a gift to be able to do what's called we call an examination of conscience, which just means to think about where you're going, where you're missing the mark, and so we can think about those virtues and those vices like how am I growing in these virtues how do I need to grow in these virtues what vices am I struggling with and another good metaphor would be to think about gardening I I really love gardening and if you pull out a weed when it's really small and sort of like the soil is loose it's pretty easy to take it out by the roots and that's what we call in Catholicism like a venial sin or well like a baby vice it's easy. It's easier to get rid of that. But when something grows a really, really deep taproot, it can be really hard. It it can take such labor and you might have to go back and work at it and work at it and work at it. And it might just have taken really deep root in your soul. And so being able to 
continually examine and look for those things. And so some people, people have different perspectives on this. Um, but I actually think because of the weeding metaphor, more frequent confession is, can be more helpful. I mean, you could get overly scrupulous with it, right? Which is the point where you're seeing sins that aren't really sins and that's its own problem. But being able to go on a regular basis and be thinking about how can I surrender these vices to the grace of God? How can I invite the grace of God? How can I say these things to another human being and have that person proxy for God and, and tell me that you're good, you're lovable, you're loved, you're forgiven? Because that's the grace that we get in, in the sacrament of confession. The priest says to you, I absolve you of your sins. The scripture says they're as far as the east is from the west. So in the mind of God, they don't exist anymore. And so the freedom that you can experience as a result of knowing that is is very powerful and being able to just do that constant work of gardening of your soul, of of weeding out those things that can take root, I think is a real is a gift as a as a religious person who tries to practice that. Not always I love a good gardening metaphor. And <laughs> that one was that one was really clear. And and I thought that was so interesting what you said that virtue is actually the midpoint between two extremes, right? And and you brought up a couple of key virtues that that come up a lot in my life. So courage is is something that people often praise me for. And um it's 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 such a strange thing to be in a position of having all these people looking to me for guidance and looking to me to be their hero. So sometimes I feel seen accurately and sometimes I feel seen in this very kind of like two-dimensional caricature way because I'm not qualitatively very all that different from anyone else right and and I think the idea that that I belong to like a special class of humans that has access to this courage that the average person doesn't have access to doesn't help anyone mm-hmm. right so I, I try to kind of dispel the myths like no I like I have fear and anxiety and, and anger and stress and overwhelm too I'm just making values-based decisions and here's why I would recommend doing the same within the context of, of your own life. And so you described courage as that midpoint, right? It's it's not this brazen fearlessness. It's it's being able to integrate your fear with your values and ultimately come to a values-based decision. And then the way you described humility, also I thought that was really interesting. It's, as I understand it, seeing yourself more clearly, seeing yourself, as you said, like through the eyes of God or through the eyes of a loving parent. And so you contrasted that with false humility which kind of reminds me in psychology, we have the concept of how uh, narcissism, you can have grandiose narcissism, which is the peacock showy look at me, I know I'm so great. But then you also have covert narcissism and there's something we call depressed depleted narcissism. This isn't necessarily narcissistic personality disorder. A person can tend to have a pattern of depressed depleted narcissism without being a full-blown, you know, someone we would label with a personality disorder, but it's a common pattern and it's a it's like an implosion it's a i'm so bad i'm the worst and and you end up making everything about you right and sort of sucking the life out of the room in that way too and so both extremes are not healthy and so i think the sort of false humility examples that you described sort of that would be an example of that but humility your framing here is is being able to own your strengths in a gracious way and to understand maybe that with with whatever strength you have comes a responsibility. Another thing I've thought about along these lines is I've, I've gotten into conversations about 
the the ethics of telling gifted people they're gifted. So I I personally tend to lean towards telling gifted people they're gifted because I think it's an important thing to know about yourself. So like I've, you know, I, I'm somebody who I myself had IQ tested very young and very, very high. And for me, there's been times and it's important to understand that not everybody's understanding things from the same perspective that I am. And that's that's very important social information. It's going to make me more attuned. Although there's no way of saying I have a high IQ without sounding arrogant, it's still important conceptual information that I keep to myself most of the time to understand that people have different ways of perceiving, different knowledge bases, and, and different processing abilities. And uh, my thoughts on this, where it's relevant is, is to how we treat young people, because sometimes there are young people in my life, whatever that, that relationship might be, where I see that I'm like, okay, I, this person's very advanced in, in this arena or in that arena. And I can see how frustrating it is for them to be around people their age who are not at their level. And sometimes I think that letting them know you are very special in this particular way doesn't mean you're better than everyone as a whole person, right? <laughs> you're still, you're equal to everyone at the end of the day overall, but I need you to know that when it comes to math or reading or physics or whatever it is that you're gifted at, you are really special and not everybody's going to be up to your speed. So here's how we're going to help you make sure that you are properly stimulated and enriched and have things that are at your level and also how we're going to help you navigate those situations where it might be very frustrating to you because something seems very obvious to you and you don't understand why it's not obvious to other people. So I think that contextual information is important. And all of that came to mind when you were describing humility, because it's like, yes, there is that sweet spot where you see yourself accurately. And and that doesn't mean that you see yourself as being better or worse than other people, but it does mean that you are able to assess your strengths and weaknesses and hold them all in context. Yeah, well, and I think that humility would would be able to see those particular gifts and strengths and to also recognize like the relative importance of those gifts and strengths. And I think, well, one reason people might be afraid of telling a kid, like, oh, you're so great at this, or even something that's obvious, wow, you're the best basketball player we've ever seen, is that's going to go to their head and it's going to change the kind of, kind of person they become. They're going to think they're better than everybody else. But being able to recognize again across the board like those human virtues i just had this experience with my daughter we we homeschool and i don't remember what she was doing you know one of the gifts of homeschooling is that your kids get to spend a lot of time with each other and then one of the burdens of homeschooling is that your kids get to spend a lot of time with each other <laughs> and so she was you know she was doing something in, and i think she is gifted in in reading and, and linguistics and stuff and so we were kind of celebrating a win that she had there and and then she was being you know a sister to her brother and and I said look I don't care how well you can read I don't care if you can read at a college reading level if you can't be kind to your brother that's the, that is much more important to me and and so I think being able to look at those gifts and and to think about the context of like what does it mean to go be a good human being then you can mm -hmm. kind of be more humble because you can see all the ways like oh I have these particular gifts but I am not overall like the, the greatest human being that I could possibly be because really and they come with trade-offs right yeah. I mean that's like the classic 
picture of of the ASPE, right? Like mm-hmm. the high functioning autism is like, you're really, really above average over here. And wow, are you slow over here? And to be able to have a sense of humor about it all is a balancing mm-hmm. virtue. But I'm aware of the time. So I did want to present you with my final question for you, besides the whole where do people find you thing, which we do at the end. But you mentioned the saints. So will you tell us about some of your favorite saints or maybe just one? Gosh, I have so, 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 so many. One of them is St. Ignatius of Loyola. And so he has the the spiritual exercises. So he's been very, very popular for people who want to be able to do that work of like knowing what I'm passionate about and discerning and understanding the role of feelings and logics. He's a fantastic one. I'm Jesuit educated. They're the religious order associated with St. Ignatius. So have to say St. Ignatius. But I also really love St. Gianna. She was a working mom saint. So anybody who's a working mom, I think talking to her got me through the first couple of years when I was a working mom. And St. Teresa of Avila, she is one of the, the saints that comes out of Spain and more the Middle Ages, she's patroness of writers, and she's my confirmation saint. So she's, she's amazing. And Dorothy Day is not a saint. And she said to people, don't call me a saint for the reasons that you were saying, like, this is not extraordinary, you know, separate class of human kind of behavior. And that's why she didn't want people to call her a saint because she was a Depression era figure who was was writing and working. She founded the Catholic Worker Movement. So really transformative in social justice arenas and changing the, the way that the Catholic Church was active in the United States and in the world. There's hundreds of Catholic worker houses now to serve the poor. But she said, don't call me a saint because that means that it kind of lets you off the hook. Like, don't say that about me. She was fantastic too. So I, I just, I could go on forever. But I think the ultimate number one has to be has to be Mary, the mother of God. And if we're going to talk about humility or talk about submitting to God's will, being able to say, let it be, and to hand it over to God in obedience, say, yeah, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know how this is going to play out. But just to take that leap of faith and say, let it be done to me according to your word and to have that ultimate trust and surrender, I think has to be the most beautiful gift and and witness of what it means to be a human person. And I think it's also incredibly uplifting in in a world where we talk about like kind of pitting men and women against each other to know that, well, if you look at who the greatest woman in history was or is, according to the Catholic Church, and so was for many, many centuries in the Western world, the greatest human being was a woman. And I think that, that that's a, a gift to be able to look to her in that and to recognize that. And as a friend Protestant brothers and sisters, I, I hear you, I feel you, I understand the objection to that, but also just to think about it from a perspective of like, who loves Mary more than Jesus? You know, she was his mom. So hopefully we can put that in that context and reach out to me if you want to explore that more. Peter. All right. Well, on that note, where are all the places that people can find you? Yeah. So the the newsletter that I send out via Substack is at faithandbioethics.com. My author website is snstevenson.com or mamapraise.com, M-A-M-A, praise, like this kind of praise, not this kind of praise. And the podcast is wherever you get your podcasts, Brave New Us. It's also on YouTube. Right now it's just audio on YouTube, but the video interviews will be rolling out here in the next month or so. And so I'm excited for that to kind of see that 
hopefully grow and and blossom into what it will become on this new platform. And once again, you have a second book on the way, but your current book that's out now is Reclaiming Motherhood from a Culture Gone Mad. And can people find that wherever books are found? Yeah. Yes, although probably not necessarily a brick-and-mortar bookstore unless you have a local Catholic bookstore, but you can get it online from Target, Burns & Noble, Amazon. The publisher is Our Sunday Visitor, OSV. They have it on their website available for purchase. It's, I think right now, well, I don't know when this episode will come out, but I just saw today that it was on like super sale on Amazon, really, really cheap, cheaper than I can even get it from the publisher, so with my author discount, so... If it's still on sale, then Amazon might be a good bet. Well, we're looking at September 11th, and I will make sure to include the Amazon affiliate link in the show notes and also to put your book in my bookshop at sometherapist.com slash bookshop. The very top section includes all the books written by authors who have been featured on the show. And the second section after that is my recommended reading for ROGD parents. So we'll go ahead and put your book in the section right up there at the top as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks, Samantha. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. To check out my book recommendations, articles, wellness products, guest episodes on other podcasts, consulting services, and lots more, visit sometherapist.com or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at sometherapist. If you'd like to go deeper, join my community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. Members can dialogue with other listeners, post questions for upcoming podcast guests to respond to, or ask questions for me to respond to in exclusive members-only Q&A live streams. To learn more about the gender crisis, watch our film, No Way Back, The Reality of Gender-Affirming Care, at nowaybackfilm.com. Special thanks to my producers, Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix, and to Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. If you appreciate this podcast and want more people to find it, kindly take a moment to rate, review, like, comment, and share on your platforms of choice. Of course, just because I am some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.